Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Story Forge podcast. Uh, it's been a while, and uh, I'm sorry for that, but I'm really excited about a bunch of the new things we have going on here. I'm Lyle Smith, your host, and today I'm recording this in a completely different environment than usual. I'm outdoors. Uh, I'm not cuddled into a, uh, a studio sort of environment, but I'm in sunny Concord, California. We're on holiday here visiting our friends Jim and Sarah, and there will be more on that in one of the next couple of episodes. We have a story to tell you um, there. Uh, but I'm also excited for a, for a few other reasons. First, this is the first new episode in a while. The first in a new batch we're calling Season 2, and the latest evolution in the pod after finally coming to an understanding of what I'm trying to do with it. We're calling it Making Things Matters, because while I initially thought we were setting out to be inspirational to business owners and founders and people starting out new ventures, I've discovered it's really about people making things. Making things they care about, things they're passionate about, making things they think will have a positive impact on the world, on them, on the people around them they care about. And today, I'm telling the story of Coogan's and one of the partner owners of Coogan's, Peter Walsh. Uh, I knew Coogan's as a track bar. It was the bar, restaurant, pub, home base, situated just around the corner from the armory, uh, the famous armory in the northern reaches of Manhattan called Washington Heights. The walls were covered with photos and memories from the community, people famous and not, politicians, beloved characters, entertainers, and an enormous collection of track and field memorabilia, race numbers and photos and posters and just about everything you could imagine. The food was great, the portions appropriate, the drinks plentiful, the joy and welcome palpable, whether you were an old friend or a newcomer. Whenever you entered the door, you knew you were in for what the Irish call some good crack, good fun. I knew Peter Walsh as one of the owners of Coogan's just from my visits there. He and his partners Tess McDade and Dave Hunt were vital to the vibe of Coogan's as a community institution. So I knew them that way, but I didn't really meet Peter until I spoke to him for this interview a few months ago. I heard from Dave Thomas, meet director at the Penn Relays, that Coogan's had closed. It had been threatened before and survived, but this time it was final. So I had to talk to Peter about what happened and what Coogan's was really all about. And I have to say I was not disappointed. Peter is a great and passionate storyteller in the Irish tradition, and I'll leave you to absorb his tale for yourself. But this episode comes at a time when a new award-winning film documentary was just released cataloging the importance of Coogan's in the history and survival of Washington Heights. They were the place that stayed open and welcoming during the riots in 1989 through political upheaval and activist efforts for people who were struggling or trying to make their community better. Coogan's was always there, supportive of the arts and sports and everything, anything the community needed. They the community loved them, and Coogan's loved them back. And unfortunately, Coogan's was forced to shut their doors, unable, like so many businesses, to survive the COVID-19 pandemic. But the community survives, and the Coogan's spirit is remembered through stories like this one, and the documentary, Coogan's Way. We'll put a link to information about the film in the show notes, and I highly recommend it to you. So now, 
Here's my conversation with Peter Walsh. I'm in a New York state of mind. Now, I just heard today that New York Roadrunners is not able to do their usual sponsorship of the Milrose. Oh, no. <clears throat> so, but it's going to continue. It's going to go on anyway. I mean, they're going to do it. But, the, and, uh, you know, a door closes, open up another way. I mean, this is a good time to get like the non traditional advertiser in like Ford Motor Company. You right. know, an automobile or something. You know, go after you know not the usual sneaker, sneaker, sneaker. Give me a break. Hey, it's um, thought it was Wanamaker's, right? So you know, yeah, yeah. So I would a clothing store. Everything new again, or everything new yeah. is old again. So that, that's going on, but they've started running in the Armory, mm-hmm. and there's a, there's a race coming this weekend, and it's very limited how they're doing it, but the, the, it's all good news. It's all good, good news. Stuff. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. So, um. How, where are you? I see, I see your room I'm in, back there. I'm in, in the basement of this is this place is crazy where I am here. Let me just show you for a second. This here is a basement which is all storage and my desk. I have two different desks down here. I have a desk <laughs> for bills. And uh, and then I have a desk for writing. We're now at my desk for writing. You know, that's and, a bad uh, idea right there, having two separate places. I do. I mean, I go over there. That's all bills. That's all that crap. And this is all art. This is creativity, this desk. Like it's it. all about creativity. Love it. Uh, and I got one, I have one comp- my old computer from work, which I have just on Spotify. So I have my music that I can turn off on a separate thing, and it's uh, that, and then I have this laptop, which is fabulous. But this is how I work, and I probably have about ten projects <laughs> going on. But the most, <laughs> when I when you have so many projects going on, the big thing you find yourself doing is going upstairs and opening the refrigerator and just <laughs> looking. All you do is look inside the refrigerator, and then you close the refrigerator, and you walk away. And, you know, it's part of the procrastination of life is opening refrigerated doors. Peter, I think we're kindred spirits. I have to this, is, this is, it's part of it. Working, <laughs> working at home, it's, to me, it's a very difficult thing. It's, it's, I mean, I'd rather go to a library and have a little seat, uh, but that's just not going to happen right now, so. Yeah, I like that, too. I mean, I always, even when I was in college, I used to like going to work in, like, the student center or something. Because I'd sit in a booth, there was some activity going around, but it didn't yep. really apply to me. You know? I wrote a three-act play that way. I wrote a musical <laughs> sitting at Hunter College. I wasn't even going there. Right. I, I would just go in, mm-hmm. sit down in a huge lunchroom. Yep. And at 9 o'clock in the morning, nobody's there. And by 12, the place be packed. I would have lunch. Mm-hmm. It would unempty. I would write a few more pages. Yep. And I literally wrote a three-act play over a period of a few months. Uh, doing that fantastic <laughs> yeah it's all good stuff uh, so you know it, it's funny the reason the reason i wanted to talk to you um was obviously coogan's uh as as a a cultural landmark of upstate manhattan mm-hmm. um <laughs> but uh you know and how i know as being so tied to the armory and the events of the armory and all the runners and, and all of that, but all that whole neighborhood up there. Uh, and I, I know it had, you know, you've closed for good and, mm-hmm. but you were threatened a couple of years ago too, with closing. Um, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And in the sad news, the guy who wrote the great article yeah. for the New York Times, Jim Dwyer, right. uh, just died last week oh, at no. 63. And it was his great writing in that one article he wrote right. in us closing right. that caused the revolution. I found out you were closing uh, mm-hmm. this time. Yeah. The night when I interviewed um, uh, Dave Johnson about the pen relays shutting down for the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and he mentioned that, that Coogan's was closing. And I was like, oh, it's heartbroken. And I, I, you know, I don't have the connection to Coogan's like the neighborhood folks did or the mm-hmm. people there all the time. But I've been there and it was right. just, you know, it's just a, a wonderful, joyful place. And um, so I, I made that note and, and Dave gave me your info and I kind of forgot about it. And then I saw the commercial you guys uh, that you did oh, yeah. on that went out on Facebook, and was I was like, oh God, that's beautiful! <laughs> it's a really great inspiration it, kind of. I'm gonna tell you, and, I mean, even the song. Get, you know, uh, well, it, it, it's peculiar. We have the longest running Irish wake ever because we were supposed to die now about three years ago. Right, people started burying us, right. and we were still breathing. Um, and it, it's but funny enough, Jim Dwyer, the, you know, two Pulitzers, one of the great writers in America, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a story about us closing and, and how the hospital was instrumental in deciding we'd be closed. Yeah. And his writing, it, it was so definitive and beautiful. And it came out in the evening. It, this was before the newspaper came out. It, it, it came out on the um, the web, the New York Times web. And all of a sudden, around 8 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock, our phone starts ringing, ringing, ring, and people start talking to us saying, what, what? And we have no idea it's been released uh, at that point. Right. And now it it's... It's just nonstop. Now we have phones, people coming up, knocking on our doors. And it even it hasn't been published yet. Right. Uh, so and we had an obligation also to tell our staff that the place was closing. Right. So immediately, you know, we had uh, that morning before it came out, we, we called the whole staff uh, for a meeting, which is about 40 to 50 people. Right. And. What we did was we told them, here's what's going on. We're going to be closing in several months. Our main job is going to get everybody who works for us jobs. And we hope everyone's going to stick with us to the last day. But if you can grab something, you know, we understand that 100% of people stayed with us. And then we started planning a strategy of how we were going to get everybody jobs that would pay, if not the same, more money. Right. And we started doing that and calling our contacts. So we were just building that up. And then this thing exploded where it just went to another level. And, you know, petitions, I think 15,000 people signed within uh, two days. Right. Uh, uh, I mean, it was just, we didn't even know there was a petition. We had no, I mean, and people think we're smart, you know, what a sad mistake that is. Uh, people think, you know, oh, wow, these guys, what a strategy. <laughs> this was this was like watching a movie from inside uh, uh, the movie house, and, and it was still being made. Uh, it was it was an incredible thing watching 
an uprising naturally happened from the inside. And it was people over. I never hugged so many people before in my life. I know everybody who has a gun up in Washington Heights is from hugging them. Um, <laughs> it was, I was hugging people. Uh, I mean, it was, it was, inc- it was nonstop. It was, it was a festival of it. And then Lin-Manuel from Hamilton, who, right. you know, is a regular customer and his, his father we knew and his mom, he, he did his birthday parties there since he was a little kid. Yeah, I remember him as a little kid, you know. Hey, Lynn, how you doing? What are you going to be when you grow up? Uh-huh, you want to be an actor. Okay, why don't you act like an actor and pretend you're a waiter and pick up the little paper you dropped on the floor. Thank you, Lynn. Now, you know, and, and this was the, our relationship with the, him as a kid. Right. And, um, and it couldn't happen to a better guy. He is exactly what you, you see is who he is. That's that not a facade. It's not, he is a wonderful person. That makes me very happy to hear. I have to it, 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 yeah, <laughs> it is. There's nothing hidden there. He's a nice guy. And his father is a nice guy. And, you know, give you a little background on Luis, his father, mm-hmm. who they have a, uh, HBO is now showing a thing called Sempre Luis, a uh, documentary on his father. Yeah, oh, just started uh, last week. He's an interesting week. guy. He's a really interesting guy. Oh, he's a character. I mean, he's a, he's a political mover. Um, he, he never stops. So he was, Lynn was getting an award from a charity that my wife and I do called the Hatter's Ball mm-hmm. Award, which raises money for kids who are in undernourished neighborhoods to, uh, to go to this creative arts uh, school in the summertime where you do theater, computer work. I mean, it, it's an incredible program. And Kevin Klein used to come in to teach Shakespeare. Oh, wow. I mean, it was just amazing uh, what was being done. So half the kids were scholarship kids, which we raised the money every year. So Len uh, was getting the award. He was out of the country. So his father was coming. And it's about 10 o'clock at night. He's not, he, he's not there yet. This is when he award. And then I see him. And I said, hey, Luis, you okay? You know, he's right He's breathing hard. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I said, but w- what's going on? And he goes, oh, I just came from the hospital. I go, what? He goes, yeah, I just got out of the hospital. I said, Luis, what are you doing here? Right. He goes, I told you I'd be here to receive the award for my son. Oh, wow. <laughs> he came right out of a hospital to do that. Wow. But it gives you an idea what kind of guy he is. Yeah, I mean, that's... that's. Um... I mean, this is in the middle of Hamilton being the biggest, you know, show in the world. Yeah. You know, not yeah. in the country, not in the city, in the world. Everywhere. Um, so I just, I, I just thought that was one of the most amazing things that he would do. Yeah. And uh, Luis is, is, is that kind of guy. And um, so, you know, he came and he received the water for Lynn. Now, <laughs> we go back when Lin-Manuel did his first thing in the Heights. Right. He was off Broadway. Yep. And my wife had a program, which each year she would buy tickets for a play mm-hmm. for like 400 kids. She had 400 kids within the program. And <clears throat> she would choose, you know, whatever, you know, major play there was. And I'd mentioned in the Heights tour. And I said, well, you know, why don't we just go see the play? We went. So she bought out the theater. So, I mean, it, 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 this is a, it's, I love this story because here it is, you know, Lynn hasn't made it. He's not on Broadway yet within yeah. the Heights. Yeah. And my wife is in a position to buy, you know, any show she wants to get Broadway. Right. And by buying 400, you get a discount for tickets. Sure. And, all. 
And she chose an off-Broadway show, which had 400 seats, and it was in the Heights. And Lynn never forgot that. Lynn never forgot that. So it's little things you do in life that always come back. And uh, it wasn't like uh, we were doing something because uh, we thought it was a wonderful play. We thought her kids were going to enjoy it. Uh, it wasn't like uh, any other reason we did except for quality and for entertainment. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just to, to be a yeah. patron. of. No, Lynn. yeah, it wasn't. It, this was real. It, it, it was something real. And it was a pleasure to do. Right. So we ended up the buying out in the Heights as a theater and... And then, you know, Lynn later on and, and, you know, in life, seeing his incredible success, um, it was just fabulous. So Coogan's, I'm going to bring us back to Coogan's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Coogan's opened in 1985. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to go back a little bit further. Uh, well, where, where did you come from? I'm, I was literally born in Harlem, East Harlem. And then we moved down to the, when I was a baby, we moved down to the East 90s in New York City. Uh-huh. which was a, called Yorkville, and which was German and Irish, basically. Uh, you had the breweries, uh, the Rupert Brewery. was, it was uh, Breweries all over the place. I, I know the smell of hops. Um, <laughs> you know, it's at 4 o'clock every afternoon. They would uh, let the, the hop smell would get out, which is a, <laughs> a terrible smell if you're not used to it. And uh, it was a great neighborhood. You had Jimmy Cagney, you know, he lived on 91st Street. Um, my father played baseball with him as a kid. You had the Marx Brothers on, on 90th Street and 3rd. You had Duke Lancaster and Burt Lancaster. Now, this is not my generation. This is my father. Sure. But they were up on 94th Street. So the neighborhood was just rich with uh, people who blossomed onto the, uh, the... And Lou Gehrig was 94th. 94th and 2nd. Uh, was Lou Gehrig. So, I mean, what a neighborhood. I mean, you're talking about a spectacular place. Right. And we lived on 86th Street, mm-hmm. which was like living in the middle of a cartoon because 86th Street is the boulevard in, in, in the 50s. It was what the, it was the largest speaking German population. Yorker, the only two bigger was Vienna and Berlin. Oh, wow. Uh, but you, you heard <laughs> German being spoken. And, um, and Yorkville was just uh, full of uh, the Heidelberg, the Bavarian. So I'm born on a street with about 30 bars. <laughs> you know, I'm, I mean, I know the noise of tin cans, garbage cans at three o'clock in the morning banging into uh, <laughs> uh, uh, garbage trucks. So, and that's why I can sleep through anything. Right. I was trained. I was Pavlovian <laughs> trained by garbage men in New York City. So 86th Street was like an incredible street. Also, all the parades in New York ended on 86th Street. So you had the St. Patrick's Day Parade, the Columbus Day Parade, the Steuben Day Parade, the Puerto Rican Parade. You had, uh, you know, the, uh, I mean, I saw more parades than any other living human being. <laughs> I mean, they all came right past my window. But the street... Once I opened my door, it was like walking into a cartoon. There was no like growing into New York. It was like, ah, you know, it was insane. It was fucking, it was crazy. And so there was no like slow, gradual hugging of New York. I mean, I had, you had to be ready. You bounced out of, the, of that building and you were right in the middle of, of New York City. Right. So, and, I, and here it is, the entire world in the 1960s, decides that the swinging east side of Manhattan, which is my neighborhood, yep. becomes the place to go to. Right. So the whole world 
decides to come visit me <laughs> without me knowing it. Yeah. I mean, it was like beautiful girls, uh, uh, athletic guys, the new bars, the, the, the bar thing becomes different for the, now you have the preppy bars start going. You have the rugby bars, you have the bars with model, you have Joe Namath with bachelors three. Um, and, and, and of course you have the great old fashioned drinking of New York city and probably one of the most underestimated uh, places uh, to go drinking at which I went from an early age uh, when I was 15 was to go to hotels. Yeah. I would drink at the Pierre at the, uh, the Plaza, the, the Regis. And cause they would always serve me. If I had a jacket, I would go in with a jacket. And, um, I always used to say, excuse me, is my father here yet? And the bartender <laughs> go, had no idea who I was, but he'd go, no, your father's not here. And I go, Oh, okay. Let me have a beer. And I would order a beer as if I was waiting for my father. They had no idea. Now, by the time I finished five, six drinks now, and I, you know, and here I am, I'm 15 years old, right. knocking these things down. Uh, I'm surrounded by the most wonderful rooms. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm from a, a railroad tenement with seven people living in a, in a place for the two bedroom apartment. <laughs> so it was a way of opening the world, but I was also drinking in these elegant rooms and meeting interesting people, you know, especially daughters and uh, their mothers. For some reason, daughters and mothers, I always ended up, you know, they'd be shopping in New York from like uh, Texas or whatever. And they go, like now, Peter, now, Peter, what's your father do here now? You know, and I'd be there going, well, he's in between things right now. He, he's an executive, uh, you know, and I would just make up these bullshit stories. And, um, you know, of course, but meeting all these wonderful people from coming around the world. So hotel bars. Uh, was something where I, I discovered at an early age, you know, because the, vicariously they became my living rooms. That's funny. For the price of a beer. Yeah. You know, <laughs> for the price of a beer. Uh, so, and then I started bringing friends to mine. I said, okay, get, get your jacket on, make sure you have a tie. And then I taught everybody how to do this, all my buddies. <laughs> it's a guidebook you could write for them. Oh, I'm going to tell you. That's, well, that started my life off into organized drinking, which I guess I was due to own a bar based on uh, that kind of background. Yeah, I mean, I was so, going to ask, how did you, you get into the bar business? How did you, you make Well, as my father said to me when I told him I was buying my first bar called Puddings, mm -hmm. which was on 90th and Lex, um, he just looked at me. I, I had just finished, you know, going to school again at Trinity in Dublin. Right. And he says, you are just the overeducated, unintelligent. You are doing what your grandfather did. That is not smart, young man. That <laughs> is not smart. So, you know, I basically uh, went back to do what was in my family. There had been some people in the bar business, but I knew the business. Uh by accident, by proxy, you know, I always bartended when I was going to college or sang in a bar, had bands. So we always did, did everything from the Irish folk music to blues. Right. And, you know, we would play in bars. And then, you know, later on, I, you know, I took off to Paris and, and to London. I was doing blues. Right. And uh, going to school again over there. So I was having a wonderful life. It was um, I did my retirement when I was like 18. I decided I'm going to live like I'm retired. Now I have to work. Right. You know, so now I have to work to, to make up for all the sins I did as a young person. But uh, I had a bar called Puddings. Right. Funny enough, 
Gooding's probably was the first preppy bar in New York City. It was a combination of Irish working class and well-to-do people from Park Fifth and Madison Avenue. And everybody got along. And I put music in the place. I bought the place from Buzzy O'Keefe. And Buzzy is one of the legends of uh, bar owning in New York City. He owns the River Cafe, the River Club, all the places on the river. He has, he has about six or seven bars, something at Grand Central. And uh, interesting guy. And uh, But I bought his share out, and then I had partners. And I ended up buying the building <clears throat> because the owner of the building, this was like a pimple on his real estate market. He owned like 40-story buildings. Right. And he was a wonderful old Jewish gentleman. And he had the whole, and we got along. And he would always look at me and goes, Peter, Peter, take it off my hands, will you? Will you take it off my hands? <laughs> I go, Saul, I can't afford it. He goes, I'll make it. I'll make you afford it. And literally, he took back a mortgage from me. I had nothing. You have to remember, when I bought this bar, I had no, I just come, come out of the army, basically. I had to borrow money off the street. Right. And I got the money by selling a book of poetry. This is insane. But I published a book of poetry of uh, called 12 Passports in a Stowaway. And it was about all these expatriate Americans living in Ireland right. who, who I met there. So I published their poetry. So I sold these books and I made about $15,000. And it, I only, I, you had to buy a, I wouldn't sell you a book. You had to buy a case. <laughs> so, and I, I would sell these to like bar owners. And I, and I go, hey, Mickey. And they go, well, what do you have? I go, you need to buy some poetry. And he goes, yeah, yeah, give me a copy. I go, no, no, you have to take a case. And they were hardcover. <clears throat> and you're going to be like $13 a piece. There's a 60 in a box. <laughs> and I said, Listen, you can give them away as stocking stuffers. You can give them, he goes, what do I want with poetry? What are you, what are you kidding me? I got to take a case of this? I, I, give me one. I, I, so, so I would make these guys buy and sell it at their bars. They would put it behind the bar and the bartenders and stuff. Anyway, I made some money off it. That's awesome. And I bought my first bar with that and money I borrowed from some gangster off the street. Uh, who I paid immediately back because he, I wouldn't be alive talking to you if I didn't. Um, I paid him so fast that he didn't even charge me a big, wow. he didn't even charge me. He goes, Money. when you need a million, buddy, you come to me. You understand that, don't you? <laughs> and uh, But that was it. So I got it, ended up buying a building. And then I decided to sell the building because I never had money before in my life. And here I am about 27 years old. And, and and when is this about? This is in the 1970s. Uh, just the 1975, 1976. Or okay. And I sold the building. And I just wanted to see what it was like to have money. It, and it, it, was, it was nice. It's not bad. Oh, of course. You know, of course. <laughs> and now I have this money. And what I did was I started lending money to guys opening bars who I know. That'd be goodbye, you know. And there was no paper, no kind. It was on handshakes. Right. I, I was giving money out on handshakes, and but I choose who I was giving the money to, and and they in those days I was getting paid back in envelopes, you know. I mean, <laughs> it was cash out, cash in, and um, so there's about five or six bars that uh, got open because I, I lent some money out, and then I lived in Europe again for a little while, and 
one of the places I lent money for was a place called Coogan's. So I had originally been with Coogan's on the initial negotiation. And then I dropped out because there was one person who was coming in as part of the partnership that it wasn't that I didn't get along with him. I just didn't think he was professional enough. Right. And I said, my money's here, but I'm not. So that's the way we left it. And then in a couple of years, we came back and we bought everybody out. And um, and that's how Coogan. So it was, you know, 1989, I guess, uh, then when I became very active. Yeah. And uh, and Coogan's in those days was still, you know, the riots were just about to take place. Um, it was probably one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in New York, highest homicide rate in uh, the country. Right. Um, it was uh, the drug. It was the drug viaduct for the East Coast. If you were buying drugs anywhere in the East Coast, it came through Washington Heights. Right. So we got there at a very exciting time. I would think. And um, there was no competition. Yeah. When people say, why? I said, no competition. There's no competition. I go, when you go to a dangerous war zone, usually there's no competition. If I had been in World War II. Right. I probably would have opened a bar in Berlin before I left. <laughs> I would have said, let me see. Here's an opportunity. There you go. There you go. I think before well, I go so back things, home. <laughs> you know, aside from what, 1920 to 1933, <laughs> which didn't really change much of anything anyway, uh, as far as pe- pe- people's personal drinking habits. Well, it, so, so it happened where, you know, we, we went to Washington Heights, the, one of the most dangerous neighborhoods, and, and it was waiting for someone like us who was waiting for a Coogan's. Right. Uh, because, you know, people are basically good. 90, 95% of people are all decent, good people. And then those 5% of schmucks, you know, <laughs> they're either evil or the ones who take advantage of people who are scared. And, you know, there's always that in, in anything. And, the Dominicans in that community were vibrant. They were looking for the same American dream my grandparents uh, found uh, and were looking for. There was no, I didn't see any difference. Uh, I thought they had a vibrant culture. They loved music. The Irish loved music. They loved dancing. The Irish, you know, we don't dance that well, but, you know, <laughs> we, love you know anyway. we, keep our, we keep our hands at our side when we dance. <laughs> uh, but we try. Um, That's, uh, so was there, was there a vision for Coogan's or did, did it just sort of evolve? Or? Well, you know, everybody has a vision. Um, and there was a vision, but... People change whatever your vision is, especially when it comes to bars. Um, When the people enter your place, your place begins to change immediately by who they are. Uh, And I'll give you you an idea of this. And I I watched this take place. There was a bar called Sweetwaters in New York. It was downtown in the 60s on the back uh, back end of uh, Lincoln Center. And my godfather, uh, Charlie Allen, who was Puerto Rican and Irish, classic New Yorker. He opened it and he thought he was going to get the, the opera crowd. Right. Well, the first day he opens, he is packed with African-Americans who thought Sweetwater Clifton from the Harlem Globetrotters was the owner. Uh, right. Uh, so Charlie, I'm there. I'm there next to Charlie because I, I, I was uh, going to be a manager for him. I was man- And he looks at me, he goes, hey, Pete, guess what? I go, what? He goes, I just became a black bar. And <laughs> that was it. That's it. He became 
the black club in New York City. All an accident, completely an accident. He was looking, he thought he was going to get an opera crowd. And uh, he ends up with the place where Whitney Houston became a star, where, uh, you know, I mean, the people who uh, played in the place. I, I was, I had the record for the largest amount of beer ever sold in the place. I did a show there with a uh, horn section, a whole bit of band. We had an 11-piece band, and I was doing rhythm and blues. And I had the record for the most beer ever sold. <laughs> they had to order beer, because I had all the East Side bar owners come and bartenders and bouncers and that show up at the show. And the one who broke my racket was Whitney Houston. <laughs> so I always like saying, oh yeah, Whitney broke my racket. <laughs> so, but but give you an idea how a place changes. Now here's Coogan's. We opened the door up in a sense when the place was open and I was there. We were instantly the most integrated bar in the United States. Instantly. Now, you remember, bars are basically tribal. Right. Bars are basically people coming together who have something in common with each other. Right. You know, it's like, you know, there's bars for pressmen, there's bars for writers, uh, you know, there's bars for singers, you know, uh, actors, you know, the whole thing. You know, you mad, the madmen go to their bars. We opened the door and we became the most integrated bar in the world. It was Dominican, African-American, Caribbean, uh, American, Jewish. Uh, I mean, it was it was everything in there. And it worked. All in Irish tweed. <laughs> you know, but it, but, you know, there's something about and, and I have a theory on this. Every bar and restaurant in the world has a bit of an Irish bar inside them now. And the Irish. In the tradition of the pub and the place they had in the, the country in. It was just fabulous for giving you a welcome. You know, they, they, they love welcoming strangers, especially. The Irish are so good at that. And uh, I know that firsthand, and, and I know it secondhand. I mean, it's also where you have the local newspaper. When you went into the old pub and the peat fire was on the side, you would find out the prices of pigs, the chickens, uh, you know, how much things are going. You would find out who was going to get married. You would find out you know, which girl who uh, you couldn't possibly marry your son, you know, and, and things were figured out and, and you didn't have a lot of money. So the peat fire was a key because you kept warm when you were there. Right. And all of a sudden, some guy would pick up a fiddle and some guy would recite a poem. I mean, I was there in Ireland when these things, especially in the country. Uh, in those little oh, I know, parts. I know. My cousins are, uh, I have cousins in the north in the County Antrim. Oh, yeah, Antrim, I know it well. Yeah, we used to go to... Uh, uh, a place down the road from them in Tomb called uh, the Cross Keys Inn. Which Great song, by the way, the Bridge of Tomb. The, that's I see the fleet foot host of men. They lived oh, in um, that house. Yeah. My cousins lived in that house. All right, yeah. Hey, it doesn't get better <laughs> than this, man. We're talking to the right person. That far. No, I, li I lived in Ireland for almost two years. Did I you? mean, when I got out of the army, I ended up going to Trinity. Oh. And that's a funny story, how I got into Trinity. I mean, that was like... I was supposed to be in a movie in Spain uh, <laughs> as a cowboy. And I told some producer on a plane that I rode a horse, which I never rode one in my life, but I told him I did. <laughs> so I was going to spend just two days in Dublin. And I'm in uh, Davy Burns, the famous Davy Burns, which, uh, of course, Joyce made famous. And uh, they were talking about Joyce and something. And the last book I had read in the Army, 
Don't ask me why. I'm in Okinawa. It was in the bathroom. Someone had left it. It was Yates and the No Theater, N-O-H, which is Japanese theater. I read it. Yeah. So anyway, this discussion is in Davy Burns and these guys are talking and I turn around. Now I've had a few drinks and I go, well, possibly what Yeats was trying to do was slow down the lyricism of the usual Irish poetry uh, and make it so slowly moving that you enjoy every, and I start doing this Japanese folk dance in the middle of the bar. <laughs> so now I'm like, and I'm going, nah, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm doing this crazy thing. Anyway, the points are made and this guy looks at me, he goes, wow, that's incredible. I, I, he goes, I love it. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, Yates is wonderful. And uh, I knew a couple of Yates poems, of course. And he goes, where do you go to school? And I told him a little bit. And he goes, would you like to go to school at Trinity? And I go, what do you mean go to school at Trinity? He goes, uh, classes start tomorrow. It was Sunday. <laughs> we're drinking. And he goes, I said, really? He goes, well, who are you? I, he goes, well, I'm Brendan Kennelly. I run the program. And uh, he was the poet. Uh-huh. Brendan Kennelly, the, the carry poet. And he goes, if you have all the credentials you say you have, I'll accept you right now, but you have to make sure you get all the stuff uh, mailed. Next day, I was going to Trinity, man. I didn't even know where I was staying that night. I didn't even know where I was staying. I was at some hotel and uh, ended up staying two, two years. Wow. I mean, life was great. I mean, uh, but that's that's sort of a typical Irish story, though. I mean, there's, you know, you, yeah. you go the Irish bar, Irish story. And I tell I tell my friends there's I read this somewhere. I forget. And I just presume it's it's true enough to tell again um, that, you know, the, the Irish are known as storytellers. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, well, well, why is that? Because mm-hmm. in the Irish language, there is no single word for yes and no single word for no. And when somebody asks you a question, you can't answer in one word. You have to tell them a story. Well said. (laughs) But also what it is also was because the lack of education, the permission of them to be educated in schools by the British. Right. The oral tradition grew to such an extent that they became acrobats of language. Oh, and they okay. could, they, uh, what the Irish still do, and of course, this is why Joyce, and if you read any of the, uh, the great poets, and Patty Kavanaugh, or uh, Yeats, and if you look at great playwright, every English, great English playwright's an Irishman, uh, true. you know, underneath an English coat. Uh, whether you talk about George Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde, I mean, Oscar Wilde, you know, he lived on uh, St. Stephen's Green, uh, Shaw, Irish. Uh, and then you look at O'Casey and uh, anyway, I mean, which the, the revolution of the 20th century when it came to theater, poetry and uh, and the novel, which Joyce, of course, is all Irish. Right. I mean, from a peasant poor country of people who are starving arises this renaissance uh, that took over the whole world of literature. And it's very similar if you look at the American uh, black uh, the American black, when you look at the music and you look at the writing and you look at today, wh- what's going on that we, uh, you know, we've always recognized, but now I think we we'll recognize even more, but there's a similarity. And I think the Irish, uh, and have to really, uh, see that similarity. Uh, we, of course we don't have the pain of the, the African-American slave experience. I mean, th- th- I mean that to me, there's nothing like it. I mean, it's the greatest stain on America. No, absolutely. Is that it's the slave experience, uh, uh, what has happened there. I mean, even that's saying it too nicely. Um, 
But the, the Irish, uh, by not being permitted education, turned into well-oiled machines of gab. I mean, if you if you need someone to gab with, you're never going to go to sleep with an Irish guy next to you or an Irish woman. Uh, it, it's uh, it, it's just incredible. I mean, they have ways. Of, you know, my father. I, there's a thing I used to call Irish truth. And Irish truth, very much like what you were saying, is uh, Irish truth is 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 not saying anything um, by saying a lot. Right. Um, in other words, they don't answer your question; they answer their own questions. They'd be very good at debates, like we see on TV. Oh, yeah, they call it So I used to love going into bars and like reciting poetry. Yeah, and people just weren't used to it. You know, and, you know, and, uh, you know, whether I sing a song and that, but I would just tell the bartender, I go, turn the music down. And I just start reciting a poem. Oh, that's funny. That's cool. Drink a few drinks. People would buy me drinks and go to the next bar. That's cool. But it, it, it was, and I would do that in Ireland. When I needed money, I had no money for drink. I would start singing blues. Oh, that's and funny. they would look around and go, oh, Jesus, it sounds like an African. It sounded like you said like an African. And I'd be like, whoa, whoa, my mama, tell me. And I would go into some blues chant. Right. And uh, I'd drink free for the rest of the night. But that's, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and bring it around here. Because this is, this is um, it, it ties into that whole concept of, uh, of the Irish storytellers and the pub as the hearth, sort of the community hearth. And, you know, because I've, I've experienced that there. I've experienced it in a few places here where it, it's, it becomes sort of a, a heart of the community. I was, when I first went to Ireland uh, and met my cousins there and went out and it, I realized the pub is sort of an extension of the living room, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's kind of how I felt um, going into Coogan's for the first time. I felt, you, you said it instantly became the most integrated bar in America. Um, and um, but it's it's very definitely it was very definitely an Irish place, um, welcoming everyone. And um, you know, was that you know, if you came in a stranger, you left as an old friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, within if you came in a stranger to Coogan's and we got we got our hands on you. If I got my hands, you left an old friend. Yeah. I mean, and, and it was it. I wanted to know about you. I want to know who you were. Right. And and that's basically what people, you know, it's like being a good journalist like you, asking the right questions. Is, right. And people have secrets they never share that they will share in a bar. Right. You know, they will tell you about a dream that they wouldn't even tell their wives. They it, it, Maybe it's a forgotten, maybe it's an old dream they had that they put away because they had to get a job and put their kids to school and right. go to work. But when you find tap into those dusty dreams, when you when you find out what they are, then and and you open up a person to that, you've given them the greatest experience they can possibly have. Right. You return them to dreaming, and that's what you do when you own a bar. It's you return people to their dreams, and a lot of people are forced away from them. A lot of people aren't allowed to have them. A lot of people haven't allowed themselves uh, to have them, and so it's 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 nice to to be a dreamer. It's wonderful. When did when did Coogan's become a track bar? Jesus, well, we're next door to the armory. 
And it was that was a, a fake complaint. But what happened with uh, it was uh, Norm, uh, uh, you know, the founder of, of the Armory, of course, was uh, was Norm, mm-hmm. and um, uh, what he did was uh, was just amazing. But we hit it off. We got yeah. along, and um, yeah, it, you know, he was a poet, by the way. He wrote a book of poetry, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. wow. and he spoke uh, fluent French. He was a doctor, of course, and we we just got along. But and what I did for him, and what Coogan's did for him was. We hooked him up politically. What he needed, I mean, it was like meeting somebody with a, a, a tin cup and, and a cane and sunglasses. I mean, this guy had, I mean, every he was begging everywhere. I mean, he didn't, he, whoever he talked to, he brought up, uh, you know, how, he tried to find out how much you were worth within seconds. <laughs> he could get anything out of your pocket. But Norm, Norm was like that. He had to be. But he, because of him, the, the army took place. But he needed an elevator. And he said to me, God, I need this elevator. And I said, how much? And he go, uh, it's going to cost 400000 yeah. I said, yeah. I, I said, okay. And I would bring him together with like Denny Farrell. I said, Denny, is, isn't there some money out there for um, people with disabilities, that, uh, the big fund for disability fund? He goes, yeah. I go, he needs an elevator, four hundred grand." And he goes, okay, you can have it. You got an elevator. Charlie Rangel, you know, sitting there, you know, Charlie come. Hey, Peter, you know, let me tell you something. I'll be there with bells on my toes. So, you know, Charlie be doing all this stuff. Like I said, listen, they uh, they need a computer lab here. And, you know, one of his assistants, uh, Robbie, I said, Robbie's just saying there's a big thing going on to get computers for schools. Can we right. get the armory in on it? As, as it's going to be an educator in class. Right. And he goes, yeah. They got the money. They got the computer room. You know, this is we were able to marry him to a lot of the politics. And because he was moving in on a neighborhood that the nonprofits up there, they had wanted the armory. Yeah, they they wanted they wanted to take it. They were going to build a uh, residential housing on top of the armory and have that as uh, community centers in the bottom. Uh-huh. There's a whole plan for this. And he came out of nowhere. Norm came out of nowhere. Where and uh, uh, and uh, he won, he won, That's and uh, it's an amazing story. I mean, it's he's amazing, a, he's an amazing, amazing guy. It's an amazing place because it's it's a oh. uh, you know from the for, as a track fan and a former runner and all that stuff. You know, I remember. I remember my dad telling me stories about going to run there years ago. When I got splinters in my ass. <laughs> it was a flat gym floor. Yeah, it and, was. Uh, and you go in there now and it's like, you know, people it's, come okay, from, it's state of the art. People come but, from all over the country but, to run there. But you know what makes the armory rock and roll, you know, different than other places? If you look at other places, indoor arenas, the seats go out like this. Right. The armory, the seats are on top. They're right on top. So of they're on top. So I mean, it's a rock and roll concert. Yeah, so yeah. when you're running, the fan is, you know, feet away from you, right. yelling and screaming. And you watch like a, a four by four, and you want, and it's sucking the air out of the place. Yeah. I mean, it's all the air is just taken right. I mean, everybody's yeah. asphyxiating in the audience because someone stole all the air. But right. everyone is on top of these kids, and there's nothing like it in entertainment. Or in sports, as watching like a, a four by two at the armory. 
Right. Because that's what that's once around. And for but to watch, I mean, come on, man. That, you talk about violence. I mean, yeah. you just it, it's it's all it's bordering on the barbarians are coming. The barbarians are coming. Well, and it's that old space with the, the old concrete space with the sound reverberating off of everything. Yeah. It's it's there's nothing and this and this and even with the the new track surface, it still has that vibration to it. Well, you know, they had to cut some of the mondo off. They had too much mondo. They <laughs> yeah, they had so much mondo every year. They would put more mondo, mondo, right. mondo. That for uh, international records, it had they had to take some off uh, oh, really? and slice off about you know, six inches of mondo. Oh my god! Because they were just yeah, every year putting uh, more and more. But and remember, there's 200 homeless still there. And when I was homeless, I can tell you, that was like a a picture out of Dachau or you would look. I have. I remember standing upstairs, looking down when all the beds are there and, right. and the home. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, this was like there were fires on. There were right. gangs inside. Uh, it was a dangerous place. Yeah, it was it dangerous. And he got it back. So, so Coogan's as a track bar. Coogan's as a as a neighborhood institution. Um, it's a meeting place for the community. It's a, a political hangout. Yeah. And, I mean, all you know. Well, what what do you feel about Coogan's? I mean, because now we've been through oh. this this second round. It's your your close. Well, let me let me pause on that question for a second. Because um, you had who else was involved in this? Uh, I have Dave Hunt and Tess O'Connor. Dave, Dave Hunt and Tess McTay, and then my brother was involved, but he was a, a silent partner. But Dave and Tess, yeah. And, and I had a thirty five years of partnership with them. Never an argument, not once. That's awesome. Yeah, and that was we, that's, that's, we respected each other's talents. We we believed in each other. It's an important thing in business. You know, I know part of the concept is entrepreneurs. Right. We we have a partnership that's based on a hundred percent of faith in each other. That we all permit each other to practice their talents, and we don't need to ask for permission. We can be, and we you know it's not like oh let's have a meeting and decide. We know. If one person decides on something, he's thought about it or she has thought about it, and we join in and help in any way we possibly can. Right. And you just presume everybody's ex- exercising their best judgment and you trust in their talents. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it's, it used to be very difficult for us to make decisions with institutions or whatever, like if we were dealing with the hospital. Right. Because we know they have to take it back to someone and they got to vote on it and they got to, you know, see how it is. And my thing used to be with them. I go, okay, I can make the decision for all three of us right now. I can say yes. Now, can you say yes? Right. Well, I have to go back and um, and I said, well, negotiating tool. And and here was one of the things that you saw. I said institutional people. I go, the problem I have with you making a decision, Bob, is when you make a decision, you say, "Will I have my job tomorrow?" I don't have that problem, right? Because I'm the one who can fire me or hire me. And I said, so you're going to decide, is it good for you? And I said, and I don't give a shit about that part of the equation. <laughs> so I used to have to be, Dave used to have to say, leave these guys alone. Cause sometimes we'd be on, you know, you know, creating some things, but we could play good cop, bad cop with them very easily. And yeah. it was like, it was like fun, you know, right. you know, right. going, I, I would say, I have to go suit somebody. <laughs> it meant that if I put a jacket on and a tie right. and someone said, 
oh, where are you going, Peter? I go, I have to go suit somebody. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's yeah. funny. But this place, you know, it, it becomes, um, you know, it became what it became, which is which is yeah. important to so many people. I know because my sister lived up in that neighborhood and she, she used to go there uh, with frequency. Uh, I went there, oh. there a few times. Oh, thank her for putting shoes on my children. <laughs> <laughs> I, love it. I love it. But it's... Um, and and it's it's one of those places because not every you know not every bar is created equal you know, and you go into some like Coogan's and it 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 has a visceral energy to it, uh, that that just in my experience exudes a certain amount of joy you know it just makes you feel welcome makes you feel like you want to be there, and you don't think twice about talking to anybody about anything, um, which I think is really rare. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I always love the place for that. It's, um, you know, we, we've we literally had probably two or three parties for Nobel laureates. <laughs> you know, a lot of people have it for football games uh-huh. and that. But we had parties for Nobel laureates. I mean, this in, in, in our back room and, uh, you know, in chemistry and physics. I mean, and then at the same time, you know, you're watching a baseball game or there's a track meet going on and people coming from the track meet. It was such a conglomeration of everything you know uh, again going back to joyce uh here comes everybody right. you know right. it was that it was here comes everybody and everybody was important and we weren't greedy we we were having a good time right. i think we were i think all three of us the three of us were a little bit immature you know what do they what do they say you only be young once but you can be immature your whole life <laughs> well we were we were still immature enough to enjoy what we were doing. And I think people realized it wasn't about us taking a dollar out of their pocket, although they were giving us money for their beer and food. It was, it wasn't about that. It was the fun uh, that was going on around it. Um, And, and and the heights, everything was going on. I mean, there were meetings about everything, you know, safety meeting, meeting about music. You know, there's a new theater company. You know, we had the first theater company in the modern uh, Washington Heights in our back room. Uh, It was our waiters. We did, we had our own theater company because there was no theater. And we had, you know, our waiter, Brian uh, became the director who later became the head of uh, public relations for the hospital. Oh, but he became the uh, director of a theater and, uh, and the waitresses and that would do plays and we had curtains, we had everything. Um, art, we had a different art exhibit every uh, two weeks. We had major art. Exhi- I don't know if the paintings were that good, but I could sell them. Um, and we put red dots if they were so, but we would do it for free. We would have, you would come in as an artist and I said, hang your art up. I'm going to, give you a wine and cheese party. You make sure you get 50 people to come right. to look at your art. Well, these are 50 people I've never seen before. This is my advertising budget. Right. That's the way I looked at it. Yeah. I said, what the heck, the wine and, and cheese is on me. You're giving me 50 people yeah. who are in striking distance from Coogan's. And if I get a few of them to have dinner, I'm happy. Yeah. If I get a few of them become customers, I won. Right. So, Right. And that's the way we looked at things. We we weren't greedy. We weren't like, oh, you got to pay us uh, this amount of money to have. We, we it was a deal. There were deals being made. That's the thing. That's the thing I never understood. You know, you, you'd go to places, become a regular, and and you know, place some places would just nickel and dime you for every little thing, 
And then there were the places that you went again, <laughs> you know, uh, it's like, if you had that, if I had that kind of experience the first time, I, I probably wouldn't go back. Um, yeah, you, you, you know, the idea of going to a place is to get away from reality to an extent. Right. You know, I, I used to look at these bills that's when they first came out, the bills would show you your tax, the tip, the percentage, right. what you can charge food. They would break the liquor and it was all information that nobody wanted to see except for maybe an accountant right. or if, if they, but the idea of going out is to forget about all of that. It's right. not to care about. Right. So you have to have a trust. So when you came to Coogan's, the whole thing was, here's how much it is bump. And you knew it was a fair price. Right. You know, it, it was, it was right. our prices were compared to downtown, especially was oh, so God. low. It was incredible. So, and you never went hungry. We, we weren't giving you, you know, you know, a piece of celery, you know, you were full. Yeah. Because yeah. we, Dave and I, we always like full plates and we had big appetites. So the kitchen staff made all plates like we were eating. That's awesome. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it wasn't one pork chop, it'd be two pork chops, mashed potato. And we used to have people complaining, saying, why did you give us so much food? <laughs> Never complain about that. What a complaint. I said, do you like it? He goes, oh, we love it. You know, but, you know, they, they, that would be a complaint. Or we would give uh, portions that were too much. And we just didn't know any better. Um, you know, we brought, I brought up in families who went through the Depression. My father, you know, he wouldn't let you uh, leave any food on your plate. He cleaned yeah. everybody's plate, you know. Waste, don't waste not yeah. whatnot. Yeah. So, you know, you went through the sort of, I guess, the hospital-related threat in 2018. Yeah. yeah. And then COVID hits. And things change. Um, what do you What do you see? Because I mean, you know, New York was the the epicenter for in this country for quite a while, and um, you know, how do you navigate that? How do you organize anarchy? Um, it's we saw it right away. I mean, as we didn't have a lot of years left on our lease, you know. I mean, the hospital got shamed into giving us the new lease. Right. They spent so much money on ref uh, you know, reframing their name in a sense. Right. And, and, and not because we were doing anything against them. It happened. They just, they made the wrong decision. They it, just it, didn't handle it right. Yeah. They, it, it, someone showed me a report about 90 pages. And it was like in bad publicity, they got almost a hundred million dollars of bad publicity. They have companies that figure this out. We got over 200 million of good publicity. <laughs> we, I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, it was, it was nuts. So that happens with the hospital. The hospital realizes the real estate end of the hospital made a mistake. Right. Boom. They get it back on. Now we're back in business. It's not going to be for a long time, but they feel good. We feel good. Okay. And now this thing comes along this uh, pandemic, this, I mean, you can't, this is the bad movie that you and I would never go to saying, oh, this is too wacky. And now we're inside the movie that we didn't want to go to. Right. And we made a decision very fast yeah. and it wasn't hard for us. I mean, you're dealing with about 140 years of bar experience between the three of us. Right. There was no coming back. We right. knew. I yeah. mean, we, 
it, and it wasn't something we we're going to tell everybody how we logic uh, to this decision and no. uh, how we did it. it. It was like we just knew. We said, listen, no one's bouncing back out of this one. Uh, and we had a, a whole, you know, the way we broke it down was intelligent people aren't going to look for a crowd for a long time. Yeah. You have to, I mean, hey, honey, we got free tickets for a play. Well, I don't think so. Not this week. Yeah. You know, I mean, theater's not even going to open up for another year. Yeah. I mean, because who, who goes to the theater? One of the first. Well, to do people from outside of New York and Long Island and who are, they're not going into New York. I mean, so the theater's staying closed for one of, um, my, one of my first interviews in this in this series was with a friend of ours who's a uh, she's the head of costuming for uh, or was for Come From Away in Broadway. Oh, I love that play. Oh, it was wonderful. But, we, it. Um, you know, she's we check in with her every now and again to see what's going on. But it's like there's there's no good news, <laughs> you know, and then, all, and then you have all the businesses that live off the theater, the restaurants. And uh, the whole thing, the, the shops all around there, the tourism. And, um, you know, and it's funny. We were offered a bar, uh, a tourist bar, which I always said to Dave, I go, you know, what's great about tourist bars is you see these people, you never see them again. Yeah. You know, in, out, next, in, out, next. I mean, there's no obligations. You don't have to join. You know, it's not like in, in Coogan's is a lot different. You become partners with people. People become your partner. I mean, I'm, I was on boards of uh, probably 25, 30 organizations. You know, we, we went to the community board meetings. We, you know, when there was a problem in the neighborhood, we well, showed up. You're part of the community. And that's it just, it's not just words you're throwing around. You really are. But, but tourist bars or those other ones that right. live off tourism, they don't have that at all. And then chains don't have it at all because they just go, oh, Send your letter to corporate headquarters and we'll see if we can back your baseball team. Right. You know, no one's going to write that letter. No. You know, nobody get, get to the point of writing that letter. So we were, the, we were the ones who said, you know, you came up and you said, hey, Pete, you know, for the Little League, I go, how much is it going to cost? Anyway, so where are we? All right. So I'll just say, uh, I'll just sign off and say thanks. Thanks again. I really appreciate your time. And uh, this is a great conversation. Well, I just can't believe the amount of money you paid me uh, to do this interview. <laughs> and I want to thank you so much. And I have to tell you, I'm refusing the money because then it would stop me from getting unemployment. So, <laughs> so I, uh, I'm not taking the money, but thank you anyway. Thanks um, for being so above board. Uh, hey, Lyle, thank, no, thanks a lot. I mean, what a, <laughs> what a peculiar time in the world today. Um, someday, you know, after the, uh, after the planet, uh, explodes, I guess they'll be listening to this tape, little Martians are going to be saying, uh, and saying, look, this is what they did. Um, but then I thank a lot, but I feel very optimistic about, uh, tomorrow. Very good. Very good. Thanks right. so much. So that's Peter Walsh and making things matters. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Uh, and we're going to be focusing on things that matter from here on out. So thank you for listening. Continue to be careful out there. If you find yourself enjoying the Story Forge podcast, please give us a review at Apple Podcasts or we're on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps others find the show and hopefully enjoy it as much as you do. All recording, editing, and executive producing tasks are handled by yours truly, Lyle Smith of Nimble Smith, the content marketing agency. 
This podcast would not be possible without the sincerely excellent help of our friend and associate producer, Anthony Sergi, who produces numerous podcasts, including the truly excellent A Guest in the House, about all things hip-hop. The music on the podcast was provided by Jody Nardone and the Jody Nardone Trio, Lights Will Guide You Home album. And if you'd like to send us questions or feedback or suggestions for other subjects or guests, you can reach us through the StoryForge website. That's thestoryforge.com, all words separated by hyphens. Or you can email us at cheers at nimblesmith.com, spelled N-Y-M-B-L-E-S-M-I-T-H. Thank you for listening.